We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to whip it out. If it's on your phone, we forgive you. Go ahead and break it out. Just kidding. Um, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version, which is the ESV. And uh, so it will be slightly different than uh, what version, if you may be using a different one, it may be slightly different. But I believe that all the text will be on the screen for us. We're going to be introduced to a man named Saul. And I want to make sure that uh, I give this kind of um, introduction first because I'm probably going to interchange Saul's Aramaic name, Hebrew name Saul, with his Greek name, which is Paul. And so I may actually say either one. I'm going to try to stick with Saul. So if I mess it up, just forgive me. Do not send an email. It's not that big a deal. Okay. So we're going to be with Saul this morning in Acts chapter 9. And uh, I just want to remind us a little bit uh, of the fact that we've already been introduced to Saul. You may already know this if you've read your Bible. If you're new with us, you haven't read the Bible, you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm going to try to introduce you to a guy who I think you might find interesting. So Acts chapter 9, let's read this in verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way referring to Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to introduce you to Saul and tell you why verses 1 and 2 are shocking, and then we'll be introduced to how God transformed this man's life. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us, God, that the tenderness of your presence would be in and amongst us, that we would sense your grace, that we would tangibly experience your love this morning, and God, that we would also surrender and submit our minds to you, because indeed you did say that we should worship you with all of our strength, with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. So grant us a willing heart, grant us a thinking mind, and above all these things, Lord, grant us yourself. We came to meet with you, so I pray, meet with us, teach us, encourage us, rebuke us, exhort us, comfort us, do it is whatever you want to do. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read this again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Still. Now we have to remember a little bit about Paul or Saul. We were introduced to him in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was killed. If you remember that, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. When Stephen was being killed, uh, there was a young man named Saul who was standing there giving his approval and they were all laying their cloaks or their jackets at his feet while they whooped on this guy. And then we read in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that there's a great persecution that broke out amongst the church in Jerusalem and it was because of Saul. And in Acts chapter 3, we actually see, or chapter 8 verse 3, we see Saul who is still continuing to try and destroy the church in a raging fury, a great persecution broke out. And he was going from house to house, dragging people out and putting them in prison. He was spending his whole life trying to snuff out the name of Christ. And so that's what we saw in Acts chapter 7, chapter 8. But I want to go and I want to look at Acts as a a whole book. And I want to look at some of the letters that Saul wrote. Now, if you don't know this, the New Testament contains quite a bit of correspondence between Saul and many churches. 
And in that correspondence, there are times where Saul gives autobiographical information, which is helpful to us if we want to know who this guy is. So let me start with Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Saul says that he is a Jew, that he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but he was brought up in this city referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. This is when Saul is giving a testimony of who he is before kings and governors. So what we learn about Saul from here is that he was born in Tarsus, that he therefore spoke Greek, but he was also a Jew by nationality. He was a Jew by religion, and therefore he also spoke Aramaic and maybe even Hebrew. So we learn that Saul... A man born in Tarsus but raised in Jerusalem was multilingual. That means he's kind of smart. Just in case. Acts 26, verses 4 and 5, again, Saul is giving testimony to King Agrippa. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So not only was Saul multilingual, but now we know that being a Jew, he was a part of a particular kind of Jewish sect, which is Judaism. Or excuse me, that was silly. Fair, he was a Pharisee, let me say simply. He's a Pharisee, which means there's a level of strictness that he adhered to. He was strict, committed religious man. In fact, he says this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. And I was advancing in, in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so we learn another element that Saul was no mere spectator when it came to his, his faith. He was actively engaged. He was passionate. He was zealous. He was somebody who wanted to do something about what he believed. We might call him passionate. We love passionate people. Philippians 3 Saul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is according to the law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So Saul had a terrific pedigree. He went to all the right schools, knew all the right people, did all the right things. In fact, if we wanted to kind of summarize who Saul was, we could say this. Saul was a brilliant scholar. It wasn't that he simply knew trivia. He was a scholar. Not only that, but he was a respected religious man who had the best possible training. Not only that, he could trace his heritage back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was multilingual. He was a Roman citizen. He had a great work ethic. He had a great reputation. He was culturally literate, which means he could move and shake among the Roman culture because he was a Roman citizen. But he could also be engaged in Greek culture because he spoke it and he was born in a Greek colony. But he could also maneuver and, and be involved in a Jewish context because he was a Jew by nationality and religion. Do you see what's happening here? This man had it all. Not only that, but he had what we might call relational discernment. He was able to kind of see what people are thinking by their facial expressions. You hate people like that. Here's Saul. By all accounts, 
Saul had so much to offer the world. So much. Brilliant. In tune with his emotions and other people's emotions. Could articulate things. And what we're going to see this morning is now Saul can add to his resume all of those things. Plus, he has met Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now that's the trumper right there, man. That just that overwhelms everything else. So let's read that together. Start in verse 3. And my hope this morning is this. We're starting this new series. We are multiplied. The whole point of us pushing this multiplication idea is the reality that God gave us a commandment to go and make disciples, to go multiply. And so what we're going to learn together, hopefully, is that disciples multiply when they encounter Jesus, firstly. Disciples will multiply if you encounter Jesus, firstly. And then secondly, as disciples are commissioned with the gospel. As they go and make disciples. So those two things. Disciples multiply when they encounter Jesus and when they are commissioned with the gospel. And right from the beginning we see this. Verse 1, that Saul is breathing threats and murder. And then in verse 3, something happened to him. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think this is a penetrating episode, an encounter. Partly because of the language that Saul uses. In Acts chapter 8 verse 3 he says that, or Luke says that he was ravaging the church. Ravaging. The image is this. And you probably watch enough nature shows to know what I'm talking about. Think of a predator who is chasing its prey and catches it. And then they show that scene where the predator is ripping the flesh apart. Oh. That's the word ravaging. Luke wants to get it into our minds that Saul is not just walking around like, hey, you're dumb. He's ravaging the church. And not only that, in Acts chapter 22, Saul from his own lips says this, I was persecuting the, the way or the church to death. To death. Okay, he's not making nasty comments online. He's trying to kill people. Just think about the intensity of that. I mean, you and I can experience Facebook bullying, but at least people aren't trying to cut my head off. Saul hunted Christians furiously. Look at this in Acts chapter 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my boat against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury. The idea is his eyes are wild and open and just, I want to kill somebody. And the taste of blood, that's what he wants. 
And then when it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, that he's still breathing threats, you have to image, you have to put it in your mind, use your imagination, think of your nature show of a wolf potentially in the snow, hunting its prey, catching it, devouring it, and then when it looks up to the camera and it's uh, huffing and puffing and you can see the breath and the coldness and the chill of the air, can you picture it in your head right now? Now transform that thought into a man who is craving and thirsting for the blood of Christians. Whoa. This guy is crazy. He is a maniac. Somebody needs to get control of this guy. Well, don't fear. Somebody will. Verse 3, let's read it again. They were on their way, on his way, and he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, let's stop for a second and let's look at this. Because Jesus asked this question, who, why, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we just talked about the fact that Saul is persecuting the church. But Jesus asked him the question, why are you persecuting me? Now, think about that for a second. Either... Saul is persecuting the church and Jesus is just confused. You're persecuting me, Saul. Saul says, ah, no, I'm persecuting the church. Oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, yeah, you're right. All right, carry on. Or there's a second way of thinking it, that Jesus is actually equating the church with himself. And therefore, the people in the church can be rightfully and biblically equated with the person of Jesus because we as Christians who bear the name of Jesus are united in Jesus and whatever is said about him, we have to be careful about because when things are said about us, indirectly it's said about him. Think about that for a second. When he says you are persecuting me. You persecute, persecute my church. For us as Christians, it's important for us to understand that that's a significant thing for us to put in our minds. Because if we look around the church and, and we think these kinds of thoughts, we, we must ask ourselves this question. Um, the church, the people, the individuals that are around you, even in these pews or at your homes and all that kind of stuff, you do recognize that if what he just said is true, then when you gossip about somebody in the church, you're really gossiping about Jesus. When you're slandering somebody in the church, you're slandering Jesus. When you are unforgiving towards somebody in the church, when you are hating them, when you are reviling them, when you are bitter towards them, when you are angry with them, you are all of those things to Jesus. That affects the way that we treat one another, does it not? Or at least shouldn't it? No wonder why Saul says later in one of his letters, do not continue to bite and devour one another because in so doing you will be destroyed. Or to say it positively, love one another. You're in Christ. This is a good thing to remember. In fact, Jesus had that same kind of thought in Matthew 25, if you remember, in the final judgment. He's going to put the, the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came and visited me. 
And the people on his right said, when did we ever see you like that? And whatever you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you have done to me. How we treat each other in the church, significant. But why? Why, why? Why this interchange? You see, what Jesus does is he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked the question in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Lord is a term of respect. So he identifies, I'm Jesus. I am Jesus. And the qualifier, he says, by the way, it's Jesus. You know, the guy who you're persecuting. For the second time, he says it, you're persecuting me. But what I love about this is there's a tenderness and there's a a gracefulness and there's a, a forgiveness in here. And I see it because Jesus doesn't continue to harp on that. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. End of discussion. And it reminds us that when you have an encounter with Jesus and you become very aware of your shortcomings and your sin and your rebellion towards God, the moment that you acknowledge that, there is grace and there is forgiveness. And in Jeremiah 31, there's a promise that is made that in the new covenant, God says, I will not remember your sins anymore. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that it is Jesus, his blood that enacted the new covenant. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you have to hear this. If you are in Jesus, then God can tell you, I do not remember your sins anymore. We're moving forward. The blood is sufficient. Let's move on. That's amazing. Something else that it shows me about why Jesus was so willing to just move on. He didn't have to harp on Saul. Saul, you do know that killing people is wrong, right? You do recognize that, you know, persecuting the church is probably not a good idea. Saul's like, oh, I didn't even think about that. You notice that didn't happen. It didn't need to happen. Saul was very aware of what was going on. How do we know this? I think we know this because God is always pursuing people. And I think that's what exactly what was happening with Saul. Um, some of you probably don't know this, but I love reading. And uh, one of the things I love reading is, is just good books. I guess that's self-explanatory. Like you don't want to read bad books. But anyways... So I'm reading a whole host of good books, and uh, this was not too long ago. I was reading G.K. Chesterton and J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, some of my favorite authors. And one of these interesting things that happened during that year when I was reading those books was I came across this name, Francis Thompson, over and over. G.K. Chesterton called him a great poet. C.S. Lewis said that he was uh, informative uh, to him, and and J.R.R. Tolkien said that he was inspired by this guy, Francis Thompson. And so I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? So I looked him up and found out that he's an English poet. And then I read a little bit about his biography. And I realized that he wrote this really famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. And in it, it's a depiction of his story about how God pursued him throughout his life to the point where he finally surrendered and began to follow Jesus. Now that may not be significant unless you know Francis Thompson's life. He grew up Anglican, which means he was in the English church. And he wanted to be a priest, and so he studied for the priesthood. The only problem is he failed. He wasn't very smart. And then he decided to go to medical school to follow his, his dad. So he went to medical school. The only problem is he failed. So he was distraught. 
confused. He lost his way. He had an undisclosed illness. And because of that illness, he began to take opioids. And through that, he became addicted. And through his opioid addiction, what ended up happening is he ended up poor, homeless, living on the street, spiritually bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt, and in the throes of suicidal thoughts. Until he was befriended by two people who were Christians who kind of helped him up, shared the gospel with them, and introduced them to Jesus. And so he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, depicting how God, behind all of his circumstances, God was weaving those circumstances together to bring Francis to himself. Now, the poem is written in kind of an old English style, and so I'm not going to do that to you or me to have to read that. But I found a modern adaptation by Brian and Sally Oxley. And it takes us in this poem to the point of, from the point of his uh, wanting to commit suicide all the way to the point of finding Jesus. And I'm going to read that for you. I turned at last to the final escape, the final flight to complete oblivion. No more dawns, no more struggles, no more thinking. I would sleep, 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 and wake no more. But then, but then, in utter desolation, like a gentle breeze that washed over and around me, I felt the tenderness of his presence. I had no flight left, so I finally listened. Which of those you fled to loved you? I heard him say. And my heart answered, none only but you, only you. And when he said to me, and then he said to me, you will have no rest until you rest in me. Come, take my hand and rise. In the darkness of my gloom, I saw his outstretched hand. And I heard these words, though you would not see it, I am the one you have been seeking all your life. In that moment, after all the endless miles and all the fruitless searching, I finally quit my running and reached out to the one who had sought me for so long. And in that poem, he describes many times how he was dejected. He was utterly lost. How he thought he had no reason to live anymore. And in all of those situations, he was comforted by something unknown. And we later come to know it was God the whole time. I love that poem because I think in some ways it depicts a lot about how Saul must have been feeling in his conversion experience and encounter with Jesus. In fact, in Acts 26, Saul gives us a little bit more information about his conversion. He says this, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, and that's King Agrippa. I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he had fallen, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, and this is something we've already read, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But now Saul is adding this line. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what in the world is a goad? To be honest with you, I had to look it up. I had no clue. A goad is a stick that you would strike or you would poke an ox with. Because if you are a farmer, you would, you would be plowing your field behind an oxen. And sometimes those guys get squirrely. And so you have to poke them and prod them and make sure that they're staying in line. And so you use this goad to control your ox, to get him where you need him to go. And every once in a while, the ox will get frustrated and kick back. 
And as he kicked back against the goad, the farmer would have to goad him even more. So when Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, what Jesus is saying is, Saul, I've been poking and prodding and trying to get you to maneuver in a place where I needed you. You've been kicking back trying to resist, and it's hard for you, and also you just should stop. I'm going to win. I've been trying to goad you, Saul. I've been, try- I've been showing myself to you. It's hard for you to kick against it. Just surrender already. And I find that incredibly powerful. And one reason why I find it so incredibly powerful is because that is a little bit about what I experienced. Many of you know that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I never went to church until I was about 18. Um, I never went to Sunday school. I didn't know anything. First time I ever knew that, the re- that Easter was about the resurrection of Jesus, I was at an Easter service. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. Somebody's been holding out on me. My grandparents moved to Port Townsend, Washington when I was about seven years old or so. And uh, my parents bought a new Chrysler uh, minivan, the Voyager. I don't know if you remember that, but it was hot back then. But anyways, about 1989 or 1990, my family decided to take a trip up to Port Townsend, Washington. And this thing was, I mean, we didn't have a CD player. We didn't have a tape player. It was just straight radio. But we had a luggage rack, so it was sweet. And we drove, family of five, all the way up to Port Townsend, Washington. I was about 10 years old or so. As we were driving up five out of the right window, I'm playing with my matchbox cars and whatnot and slamming them together, you know, typical 10-year-old stuff. I look out and I see a gigantic mountain with snow on it. Oh, what? I asked my parents, what is that? That's Mount Shasta. Wow. And I stopped playing with the cars and, and I just looked out the window for the entirety of the time that you can see the mountain on Highway 5. It's probably 30 minutes just watching it. And in that moment, I felt so incredibly small. Because I'm thinking to myself, that's the biggest mountain I've ever seen. And then my brother reminded me that that's one of many mountains and it's not even one of the biggest. Oh. And then I started to realize that I'm driving on a freeway in a state where there's lots of freeways, in a country where there's lots of states, on a world where there's lots of countries. And I started to realize, oh, oh, I'm like nothing. I'm like nobody. And then I grabbed my cars again and started playing with them. And it hit me, and I'll never forget this, 10 years old, going, wait a minute. If I let these cars go, they don't do anything. And so I looked out the window, and I looked into the sky, and I asked myself the question, what's making me go? And it was the first moment that I ever had a real thought that there must be something out there besides just my experiences. And I wondered to myself at 10 years old, I wonder, like, is there a God or something like that? And I remember asking the question to my family, is there a God? That's how it sounded. And we kept driving. That was, in my mind, one of those moments where Jesus was goading me. Phil, I don't have you yet. I don't have you yet, but I'm hounding you. I'm coming for you. You're going to be mine. I didn't realize it until almost a decade later. And that's what you were trying to do? You're trying to introduce yourself to me. 
And I think Saul was having that very same experience. Here's why. Do you remember Stephen's execution when he got martyred? Stephen's getting rocks pummeled on him, dying. You remember what his last words were? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Have you ever asked yourself the question, who the them is? You know who the them is, at least? It's one guy named Saul. So Saul is watching Stephen die, and he's sitting there with cloaks all around him. And I imagine for a moment that Stephen is experiencing the pummeling of rocks. He's within a thread of dying, and he prays as his last words, not be with my family, but Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And making eye contact with Saul. What kind of powerful moment might that have been for Saul? Here's this man about to lose his life, and all he can do is utter forgiveness and grace. I've never seen anything like that. Jesus is goading him. You think it was pure coincidence that Saul was born to and raised in a Roman family, a family that had Roman citizenship? Nope. Because God intended to use his Roman citizenship to expand the gospel. Do you think it was a coincidence that Saul was a brilliant religious scholar? God intended to use him to write correspondence which would become our New Testament, or at least part of the New Testament. Do you think it was just a strange coincidence or luck that Saul happened to be on his way to Damascus to snuff out the church in the name of Christ there when Jesus encountered him and took the initiative to cause Saul to fall to his knees? Nope. It was all a part about God's plan. God knew what he was doing. Jesus was hounding him. And I think for you and I, it's important for us to just meditate on that for a moment. I love what R. Kent Hughes says about this. He says, the inner workings of God's preparatory grace touch our lives in many ways and are sometimes we're not even aware of. Appropriate words spoken here and there, pressures or lack of pressures, joys and sorrows, subtle workings orchestrated by God, And then finally it happens. Our vistas are opened. He brings us to the end of ourselves and we receive the joy of being his prize. Because God is the hound of heaven. And we as Christians, all of us who claim the name of Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can think back to that moment where you finally came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And as you look retrospectively, which is always hindsight is what? 2020. You go, why didn't I see it sooner? That led to that. And then that was because of this. And then that person said that. And then this. And then boom. Duh. I should have known. And then for those of you who are gathered here and, and you may not claim the name of Christ, you're not a Christian. Just stop for a second and just ask yourselves, you know that there have been times where things have happened and you've asked yourself, man, that's a little too kind of like, that that seems beyond coincidence. Or how did that person know to say that exact thing to me at that exact moment? That just, that seems weird. And I want to tell you, in those moments, That's not your biochemistry. That's God's goading you. He wants to introduce himself to you. 
in those moments when you feel the shame and guilt and embarrassment from sin and you're just like, man, I, just, I don't know why I feel like this. I hate this. I don't have anywhere to turn. That's God goading you. He wants to introduce himself to you as your redeemer, as your savior, as your king, as your Lord. So don't kick against the goads. Surrender. Surrender. Two things I learned from Saul's conversion, which I find just shocking. One of them is that Saul's conversion teaches us that we should never write off anyone as being beyond the boundaries or bounds or reach of the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Because I started to notice that if we're, if we're being honest with ourselves, there's times where we kind of take inventory of those around us and we kind of make a mental list of who is worthy of the gospel and who isn't. I, th- I don't think, I think this person is so bad, so sinful, so lost, so liberal, so whatever, that they're beyond the reach of the gospel. They're beyond forgiveness. They're beyond the love of Christ. How dare we say something like that? We aren't God. We don't get to make the decision on who is going to be a recipient of God's grace and forgiveness and love. And it, by the way, in this time, if you ask the early Christians, hey, let's make a list of the top five people who we think are like, you know, the worst persecutors of the church who we would like dead. One through five, guess what would be there? Saul of Tarsus every time. And if you'd have told them ahead of time, Saul of Tarsus is about to become a faithful Christian and disciple, they would have laughed you out of the building. Because that's how God works. He seeks the lost. He seeks the lame. He seeks the weak. Remember, he said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And this causes me to think, Jesus is the one who took the initiative here. This concept of seekers is crazy to me. Jesus is the initiator. Jesus is the one who causes Saul to fall on his face and surrender. Jesus is the hound of heaven. Jesus is the one who is goading. Jesus is the one who is calling. Jesus is the one who is inviting. And this notion that we invite Jesus into our hearts when it's really Jesus invites us into himself is a better way to say it. It causes me to pray differently. Think about that. If you realize that these people seemingly are impossible, Saul is somebody impossible. There's no way he could become a Christian. It changes the way you pray. If we recognize that Jesus is the initiator, Jesus is the one who has to do this, then we begin to pray differently. In fact, we begin to pray in, in kind of crazy ways. We pray for people who are so lost to come to saving faith in Jesus. And as we pray that, there's even people who are like, what are you praying that for? This guy's beyond grace. Are you kidding me? That's why it's just shocking to me to hear people like, I'm going to pray for the destruction of ISIS. And I go, no, you've got to pray crazier than that. Let's pray that ISIS would become a mobilizing, church planting, church and influence in the world for Jesus. Let's pray crazy. This should motivate us that if God could transform a bloodthirsty hound who wants to kill Christians, he can transform anybody. Who are we to say who is eligible? Wow. Second thing I learned is this, is that God is indeed the hound of heaven. Which means that just like Saul, there was no accidents 
and who he was and how he was raised and what he experienced. So in our lives, we have to get this into our heads that there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. God is sovereign. He is good. Remember Romans 8. For all those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he loves, he makes sure that everything works out for good. That's amazing. That means, that means your story, your gifts, your past, your interests, your personality, your neighborhood, your job, your kids, all of that is on purpose. None of it is an accident. Because God is going to use and leverage all of your resources and all of your gifts to do more abundantly than, ever, than whatever you've ever thought or imagined. He intends to use you to bless the world and to bring people to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing that God can use little things. Like in our family's life, God uses baseball, me being a baseball coach, to impact people. It's as ordinary as that. And I fear that when we read the conversion of Saul, what ends up happening is we think, well, the only way to go about, you know, experiencing God is to have this crazy, extraordinary experience. It's not necessarily true. God does speak in whispers, after all. And then Ananias, we're introduced to in verse 10. So those are two things we learn or can learn. There's much more. Saul can't see for three days, hasn't eaten, hasn't drank anything. He's led by the arm because he's blind to the city. And there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have uh, I've heard from Many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is apprehensive. Hey, this guy's breathing threats and murder and you want me to go to his house and hang out with him and put hands on him? He's about to put hands on me in a whole different way. I don't know if this is a good idea. You know what? Don't always focus on the people who obey God immediately. Sometimes focus on the guys who uh, stumble or uh, have false starts because that probably more reflects you and I. Does it not? I love Ananias because he's just like me. I'm like, mm, I need to make a calculated assessment of whether or not I should obey you, God. And, and God in his grace knows that we are oftentimes apprehensive. So here's what Jesus does. Verse 15, he doesn't just go, you better go. When I say jump, you better ask how high. It's not like that. Instead, he says, okay, okay. The Lord said to him, go for or because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wow. Think of the irony here. Here's Paul going to Damascus to snuff out the name of Christ. He has an encounter with Jesus and is now commissioned with taking the very same name he came to destroy to the nations. To not destroy it, to expand it. That's the kind of stuff God does. And not only is he expanding the name of Christ, he is going to suffer for the name of Christ. And we know in Paul's letters that he counts all of it Joy. That's a perspective you and I as good Americans, we don't have. 
When we feel pain and persecution, we pop pills and we pray for its avoidance. When the reality is many of these Christians, they said it's joy. So remember, disciples multiply when they encounter Jesus and when they are commissioned with the gospel. So that was Saul's encounter with Jesus. And if you look in verse 15, he's told, you're going to go and you're going to carry my name before the nations. That's the commissioning. So we're going to see how Saul responds. Ananias comes. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Saul publicly embraces his new identity as a follower of Jesus. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and they said, is, th- is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So these people are apprehensive. I don't know about this guy. And he just lays it on them. People are getting more than they bargained for. Saul is obeying his directive, his commissioning of the gospel. But his message is met with intense opposition. Look at this. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Oh, man. But think of the irony. The guy who went to go kill Christians is now being threatened by other people that he himself is going to be the object of death. That's, that's great. Because Saul now is understanding that If you're going to open your mouth for Jesus, to do so is to invite opposition. Remember what Jesus said? You need to count the cost of whether or not you're going to follow me. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand that discipleship to Jesus is not a higher kind of like Christian life than just being a regular Christian. You're a disciple or you're nothing. And being a Christian isn't as simple as like responding to a Facebook friend request. You got those before? Except. It's not like that. It's an invitation to come and die. Die to yourself that you may live for Christ. We need to insert back into Christianity its seriousness. There's gravity about it. And Saul is going to be persecuted for his commission of the gospel. And you and I should probably wake up because if we're going to live faithfully in our day and age for Jesus, it's coming our way too. We need not fear because God's grace is sufficient. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this about his opposition. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, that God, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, he knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eridus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. You see what, what Saul is doing? Here's my list of all that I have experienced for the name of Christ, which is just mind-blowing to me in our culture today, how prosperity gospel is, is getting legs. They must ignore this text. How is Jesus, who's homeless and broken and persecuted and abused, and, and Saul, who's homeless and broken, persecuted and abused, these two great men, they, they experience no prosperity. And according to prosperity gospel preachers, they are cursed. What is going on in the world? In reality, Saul's like, no, this is joy. I count it worthy of the name of Jesus. Lastly, people were persecuting. They're plotting to kill Saul. When he came to Jerusalem, got lowered in the basket, he says, it says this, and when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was really a disciple. So Barnabas takes him and brought him to the apostles and declared to, declared to him two things. Okay, let me, let me paint the picture real quickly for what's happening here. Saul comes to Jerusalem and says, hey, I want to join you guys in fellowship. And they're going, not so fast. So Barnabas grabs Paul, brings him into the presence of the apostles and gives an account Two things that are evidence of whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. So, so if anyone's asking, if the apostles are asking, anybody's asking, you and I, what is your evidence that you are a disciple? Let's look at how Barnabas answered. Two things. He took them and he said this. He declared to them on the road how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. So what is the first evidence that you are a disciple of Jesus? You have had an encounter with Jesus. So the question becomes, you Christians who are here, have you had an encounter with Jesus? And if so, what was it like? Share that. Second thing. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Or in other words, the second evidence of whether or not you are a disciple is if you, are, if you have been commissioned with the gospel and you are actively making disciples. Multiplication. Which for us is a sobering thought. We have to stop, brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, you claim the name of Christ, let's just stop for a second and let's take inventory. Let's meditate on this truth. Have I had an encounter with Jesus? If so, what was it like? And the second thing is, am I commissioned with the gospel? And that is true. Matthew 28 is true. Go and make disciples of all nations. No one's excluded from that command. You must go. So the question is, who are you discipling? And if there is no name, we must pray for a name. Because the only way disciples will multiply is if they have an encounter with God and if they are commissioned with the gospel to go and make disciples. 
to multiply. In this series, this segment of the book of Acts, we titled it, We Are Multiplied. And the reason why we named it We Are Multiplied is because we want to make sure we understand that we have to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. And secondly, we have to come to an understanding that there is no playing off duty to discipleship. We must go and make disciples. We are indeed commissioned with the gospel. Let's go. So, Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, who is the ravenous, mad, bloodthirsty persecutor of the church, who became a man compelled by the beauty of the gospel, that we are all sinners. We've rebelled against the authority of God. And yet while we were sinners, God, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. And you are offering and inviting all who will come to embrace life and forgiveness and grace and joy. God, thank you for Saul's gospel for which we are thankful to you because we stand believing it today. In Jesus' name, amen.